Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With the Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Forza Napoli Calcio Podcast. A podcast devoted to Napoli, of course, but you don't have to be a Napoli fan to enjoy it. If you're a Serie A fan, if you're a football fan, looking for the inside scoop on all things Napoli, this is the place to be. I'm your host, Joe Fischetti. Thank you, as always, for listening. On today's episode, we'll cover the latest news around Europe, Serie A, and Napoli. In part two, we'll recap round 31 of Serie A, round 33 of Serie B, and the Sedici promotion playoff. In part 3, we'll review Napoli's win over Genoa on Wednesday, and in part 4, we'll preview Napoli's next match against Milan on Sunday. So getting right into the news, the draw for the Champions League and the Europa League was completed on Friday. For those who don't remember, half of the round of 16 of the Champions League has already been completed. Atalanta defeated Valencia, PSG knocked out Dortmund, Atletico upset Liverpool, and Leipzig defeated Tottenham. Napoli drew Barcelona 1-1 in their first leg, Juve lost to Lyon 1-0, Man City are up 2-1 over Real Madrid, and Bayern are up 3-0 over Chelsea. The second legs of those round of 16 matches will be played on August 7th and 8th in the original locations, but behind closed doors. So the tournament is essentially a bracket now, and here is how the draw went. Atletico Madrid will play against RB Leipzig, Atalanta will play against PSG, and the winners of those matches will play each other in the semifinals. On the other side of the bracket, the winner of Juve and Lyon will play against the winner of Man City and Real Madrid, and the winner of the Napoli-Barcelona tie will play against the winner of the Bayern-Chelsea tie in the semifinal. From the quarterfinals onward, the tournament will consist of single elimination matches, so only one leg, played in Lisbon, Portugal. The quarterfinals will be played from August 12th to 15th, the semifinals on August 18th and 19th, and the final on August 23rd. 
In the Europa League, because they're still in the round of 16, it'll be too difficult for me to explain the entire bracket, so I'll focus on the Italian clubs, and then perhaps after this episode post, we'll share a graphic of both brackets. So Inter still have to play their tie against Hetafe, which will now be a single elimination match. If they advance, they'll play the winner of Rangers and Bayer Leverkusen, and if they get past the quarterfinals, their opponent in the semifinals would be one of Wolfsburg, Shakhtar, Eintracht Frankfurt, and FC Basel. On the other side of the bracket, Roma will play a single elimination match against Sevilla. If they win, they'll play the winner of Wolverhampton and Olympiacos, and if they get past the quarterfinals, their opponent in the semifinals will be one of Istanbul, Basaksehir, Copenhagen, Lask, and Manchester United. So in short, Roma are not going to win the Europa League. In Serie A, a special meeting of the presidents has been scheduled for Monday, July 13th regarding broadcasting rights and the associated payments. For those who don't know, Sky and DAZN own the local rights and IMG owns the international rights. Lega Serie has worked out deals with DAZN and IMG, but has filed an injunction against Sky, who have yet to pay their sixth and final installment of the broadcasting contract. That date of the meeting is important as it marks the end of match day 32. By the end of that match day, 84% of the championship will have been played, so Sky really should be making that final payment by that point. One of the things that will be discussed in this meeting is whether to stop Sky from broadcasting matches altogether. In other news, Prime Minister Conte has announced that the state of emergency in Italy will be extended beyond July 31st for fear of a second wave of COVID-19. We'll have to wait and see for how long, but some have speculated it could be till the end of the year, which means we could be watching matches being played behind closed doors well into next season. Moving on to Napoli, there's not too much to report. On our next episode, we'll provide an update on the latest transfer rumors, including Arkadush Milik, Kalidou Koulibaly, Victor Osimhen, Jeremy Boga, and many others. So that's it for part one. In part two, we'll recap the latest action in Italian football. Okay, so next we'll cover the latest action in Italian football, starting with Serie A. We'll start with the first match of the round, which was Lazio against Lecce on Tuesday. Immobile and Caicedo were back after missing the Milan match due to suspension, but Correa was out after picking up a knee injury. Lazio's attack was clearly more dangerous with those two in the lineup. This was a wild affair right from the opening kickoff. Marco Mancosu scored a ridiculous goal with his weaker left foot, picking the top corner from well outside the box. Napoli fans know what Mancuso is capable of from the goal he scored against us. Unfortunately, match official Fabio Maresca overturned the goal after consulting with the VAR. On the replay of the goal, there was an angle I saw where the ball appeared to touch his arm, so I do think this was the right decision, even though I hate the rule. What was strange, though, was on the broadcast, we could see the video Maresca was looking at to make his decision, and it was definitely not conclusive. Then, only seconds later, Lazio went ahead after Lecce's goalkeeper, Gabriel, slipped clearing the ball. He managed to stop Marco Parolo's shot, but the rebound fell for Felipe Caicedo and he made no mistake from close range. Lecce equalized just after the water break. Once again, Mancosu was involved in the play. He made a clever play to get around Lucas Leva. 
Radu and Acerbi got a little mixed up, which allowed Felipe Falco to pick up the ball in the wing. He made a superb cross to Kuma Babacar, who picked out the corner with his header. Just before the break, Lecce was awarded a penalty. The ball hit Patrick on the hand as he slid to block the cross. We've seen an absurd number of penalties given for handballs, far more than any other league, and I honestly think this is beginning to ruin the game. On this instance, it didn't seem like it made a difference though, as Mancosu skied his shot over the bar, which was his first penalty miss after 8 successful attempts. That didn't stop Lecce though, only minutes into the second half, Lecce defender and captain Fabio Lucioni scored his second goal in as many matches, both from the exact same set piece on corner kicks, just from opposite sides of the pitch. Lazio came close to equalizing around the 65th minute, Gabriel did well to push a powerful Luis Alberto shot over the bar, then on the ensuing corner kick, Lecce cleared the ball off the line. Gabriel made an incredible reaction save on Adinkanya in the 87th minute to preserve Lecce's lead, and in added time, Patrick was shown a red card after he bit Giulio Donati on the arm. Lecce managed to withstand the waves of Lazio attacks, even with 10 minutes of added time, to win 2-1. After losing only 2 out of 27 matches before the COVID break, Lazio have now lost 3 out of 5 matches post-COVID, so their title hopes are pretty much over. I think there will be a couple of lessons learned for Lotito and Simone Inzaghi. Lotito will need to provide Inzaghi with more quality on the bench, especially playing in Champions League next season. And Inzaghi needs to make better use of his bench players throughout the season. Laziali can correct me if I'm wrong, but if I'm not mistaken, he used pretty much the exact same starting 11 week in, week out, which was fine because Lazio was playing only once a week. But even before COVID, if Lazio picked up an injury or two, that could have been the end of their season too. He needs to rotate his players more, especially against the weaker clubs, to give these guys playing time so that when they are called upon, they're prepared. Meanwhile, with the win over Lazio and Napoli beating Genoa, Lecce are now out of the relegation zone, one point clear of Genoa. Immediately after this match, Juventus played against Milan in the second match on Tuesday. The first half was tightly contested with neither team looking very threatening, including the Coppa Italia. This was the third consecutive nil-nil half between these clubs, but that would all change in the second half. Adrian Rabiot scored a golazzo only two minutes into the half. This was his first goal for Juventus. He won the ball in his own half, nutmeg Teo Hernandez, carried the ball upfield and placed his shot in the top corner. Higuain did well to drag Kyer out of the play with his diagonal run which opened up the shooting lane for Rabiot. Kyer had a rough stretch there only a few minutes after the Rabiot goal, he crashed into Romagnoli trying to clear a quadrado long ball for Ronaldo. Ronaldo was left clear on goal, he didn't make good contact but managed to beat Donnarumma to double Juventus's lead. That was Ronaldo's 26th of the season, so he's now only 3 goals back of Ciro Immobile for Capo Canoniere. Credit to Milan for continuing to play. In the 59th minute, Rebic was shown a yellow card for getting in the face of the official. Now, I don't know if he was pleading for a handball, but VAR reviewed the play and determined that Bonucci indeed handled the ball and awarded Milan a penalty, so Bonucci was shown as yellow as well. Ibra stepped up and buried the penalty. This finish was more convincing than his penalty against Lazio. Teo Hernandez deserves a lot of credit on this goal for the play he made to win possession and then play the cross into the box that led to the handball. A few minutes later, Frank Kessia equalized for Milan. Something I've been really impressed with Milan over the past few matches is how well they're passing the ball. The build-up to this goal started with Donnarumma. Milan made 11 passes without Juventus touching the ball. Eight different Milan players were involved in the build-up and it ended with some lovely passing in tight space. Chalanoglu nutmegged Quadrado to find Ibra. Ibra laid it off to Kessi and his shot took a deflection to beat Chesesny. 
Only a minute later, Rafael Leao put Milan ahead 3-2 after his shot deflected off Daniele Rugani and beat Szczesny on the near post. That was Milan's third goal in the span of five minutes. Rugani almost equalized in the 77th minute with a header from a corner, but Donnarumma did really well to get down and keep it out. Rebic made it four in the 80th minute with his 10th goal in 12 matches. I don't know what Alexandro was thinking crossing the ball into his own box to Chalanoglu. Chalanoglu laid it off to Rebic and he made no mistake finishing with his left foot. Moving on, Inter had a tough match against Verona at the Bentegodi. This one was all Verona at the start. Only two minutes into the match, Federico Di Marco picked out the speedy Darko Lazovic on the wing. Lazovic did really well to get past Skriniar before finishing past Handanovic on the near post to put Verona ahead. Verona kept the pressure on after scoring. Between the 19th and 23rd minutes, the Giallo Blue had a flurry of opportunities. Miguel Veloso had a rocket that hit the post. A few minutes later, Federico Di Marco's volley just missed the far post. Matteo Piscina had a shot go wide, then Di Marco had another shot stopped by Handanovic, and then Stepinski had a header go wide of the goal. Though Verona was the better side in the first half, Inter did have a few opportunities as well. In the 26th minute, Romelu Lukaku showed his strength again, holding up the ball and laying it off for Roberto Gagliardini, but his shot was straight at Marco Silvestri. A few minutes later, Silvestri made another save on Alexis Sanchez's free kick that was heading towards the top corner. And on the ensuing corner kick, Marcello Brozovic's effort from outside the box went just wide of the far post. Like in their previous match against Brescia, Verona paid for failing to capitalize on their opportunities. I don't know what Conte said at the break, but it seemed to work, at least at the start of the second half. Inter scored two goals in the opening 10 minutes of the half. First, Antonio Candreva scored on a rebound after Lukaku's shot struck the upright. I think what's gotten just a little bit lost in the mix of Inter's struggles and the Lautaro to Barcelona rumors is just how good Romelu Lukaku has been for Inter. Candreva was involved in the second goal as well. His shot took a deflection off Di Marco and ended up in the back of his own goal. Silvestri made an important save on Lautaro in the 81st minute and only 5 minutes after that save, Veloso equalized for Verona. Amir Rachmani looked like a midfielder on this play. When we asked Rick Hoff about Rachmani, he talked about his athleticism for a big man. Rachmani dribbled past two Inter players before laying the ball off for Veloso. At the end of it, Inter was lucky to walk away even with one point. Conte only used three substitutions, but when you look at the players he had available, you can see why. I'm not sure though why he waited until the 88th minute to replace Borja Valero with Christian Eriksen. So on the same match day that Juve lost, so did Lazio and Inter. Over the span of a couple matches, Inter went from having an outside shot at the Scudetto, with a lot of help from others, to beginning to worry just a little bit about qualifying for the Champions League. The team that gained ground on everyone else is Atalanta. Josip Ilicic was back in the starting 11 for this one. Neither side had any clear-cut chances in the first half. The highlight of the first half for me was the sound of church bells ringing in the background. I've gotten accustomed to the sound of players playing behind closed doors, but I have to admit this was a little bit eerie. Atalanta had the lion's share of possession and created more chances, but certainly by Atalanta's standards, this was not the most entertaining of halves. Samp managed to hold off the potent Atalanta attack for 75 minutes before Rafael Toloi put Ladea ahead off a corner kick. There was some controversy on this goal as you could argue Atalanta should not have been awarded a corner in the first place. Omar Kali blocked Luis Muriel's cross and the ball did appear to touch Muriel before going out of play. Speaking of Muriel, he continued to do what he's done all year. In the 85th minute, Muriel doubled Atalanta's lead. He spent two and a half seasons playing for Samp, so he didn't celebrate the goal. 
and this one finished 2-0. For a club that not only scores a lot of goals, but also concedes a lot, Atalanta have now recorded three consecutive clean sheets. They also set a club record with their ninth consecutive win in Serie A and 11th in all competitions. With that win, Atalanta have now moved into third place, one point clear of Inter and two points back of Lazio. They're only nine points back of Juve, who they play this weekend, so if Atalanta beat Juve, they'll only be six points back of the champions. Moving on to Roma versus Parma, Roma dominated this match. It was easily their best since Serie A resumed. Parma were really underwhelming in this one. It was a rare, quiet match for Dejan Kulusevski. Brian Cristante lined up on the back line for Roma, which was unexpected. Early in the match, that appeared to be a poor decision. Parma were awarded a penalty kick after VAR reviewed a foul he committed in the box. Uri Kuchka stepped up and buried the penalty to give Parma the early lead. After that, this match was all Roma. Lorenzo Pellegrini nearly equalized in the 16th minute. His effort from outside the box beat Sepe, but not the upright. Just before the break, Mkhitaryan scored his second in two matches, and you can't say that Roma didn't deserve this goal. Jordan Vertu put Roma ahead in the second half with a beautiful goal from well outside the box, tucking it just inside the post. Then, in the 73rd minute, Gianluca Mancini appeared to have handled the ball inside the box. VAR reviewed the play and did not award a penalty. I think I've been pretty clear in my opinion of the handball rule. The only thing that's worse than the rule itself is not enforcing the rule consistently. Unless there's a rule I'm not aware of, which could well be the case, I don't see how this wasn't a handball. On the broadcast, they talked about how it could be that Kurtic touched the ball first, but I don't see how that makes any difference. If this wasn't a handball, then why was Immobile penalized for handling the ball against Torino, which caused him to miss the Milan match? Why was Matthias De Ligt penalized for handling the ball against Torino, which caused him to miss Juve's match against Milan as well? And why was Manolas penalized against Genoa, which cost Napoli a goal? Anyhow, Roma had a number of great chances at the end of the match, including a couple of sitters for youngster Gonzalo Villar. They didn't convert any of them, but held on to win 2-1. Parma has really struggled mightily post-COVID. They've now lost four straight matches. Napoli defeated Genoa 2-1, which we'll cover in Part 3. Fiorentina played against Cagliari. It was good to see Frank Ribéry play in this match after leaving last match, having appeared to have re-injured his surgically repaired ankle. This Fiorentina side looks much different with Ribéry in the lineup. The last time these two clubs met, Cagliari won 5-2, so this had the potential to be a highly entertaining match. Unfortunately, it was exactly the opposite. The match finished 0-0. I'm not saying all 0-0 matches are boring. In fact, back in episode 14, we reviewed a classic Napoli match against Genoa in the 06-07 season that finished 0-0, and that's one of the most entertaining matches I've ever seen. Unfortunately, that was not the case here. Both sides only had a few scoring opportunities. Fiorentina had two chances in the first half. Duncan hit the post in the 39th minute, and Ribéry had a really good chance just before the break, but Alessio Cragno made an excellent save. Cagliari had its best opportunities in the second half. Nandez had a huge chance in the 55th minute, but Drogovski made an incredible save for Fiorentina. The highlight of the match for me was the return of Christian Kouame. Kouame made his first appearance for Fiorentina 235 days after injuring his ACL while playing for Genoa. He nearly scored a header only a few minutes after coming onto the pitch, but Cranio kept the ball out. In the 83rd minute, Rashid Getzal left the match after appearing to injure his groin, but because Fiorentina had already used all five of their subs, they were forced to play the rest of the match a man down. But like I said, this one ended nil-nil. Rounding out the week, Sassuolo defeated Bologna 2-1. Sassuolo have yet to lose since the restart, so they now sit in 8th place, only 6 points back of Milan. 
which means they're suddenly in the hunt for a Europa League spot. With 14 goals in their last five matches and with firepower like Domenico Berardi, Francesco Caputo, Jeremy Boga and Gregoire Defrel, Sassuolo are definitely the new Atalanta. Udinese defeated Spal 3-0. After losing their first two matches, Udinese have now collected seven of a possible nine points in their last three and are looking safe from relegation. Kevin Lasagna has scored five goals in his last four matches. Finally, Torino defeated Brescia 3-1. Andrea Bellotti scored again. That's his fifth in his last five matches, and Torino are now seven points clear of the relegation zone. Moving on to Serie B, round 33 was played on Friday. Benevento drew Venezia 1-1, but again, Benevento are already champions, so that doesn't really matter. Second, third, and fourth all won their matches. Crotone picked up another important win, defeating Cittadella 3-1. Pordenone defeated Pisa 1-0, and Spezia trounced Cosenza 5-1. Fifth and sixth both lost. We mentioned Cittadella lost to Crotone. Frosinone lost 3-1 to Empoli, who are now only a few points shy of Frosinone. And eighth place, Chievo drew Trapani 1-1. At the bottom of the table, Livorno lost again 2-1 to Cremonese, so with 5 matches to play, Livorno are guaranteed to be relegated. Juve Stabia drew Antella 1-1, Ascoli defeated Salernitana 3-2, and Pescara drew Perugia 2-2. So as it stands, Livorno will be relegated, Trapani and Cosenza are in the other relegation spots, and Ascoli and Juve Stabia are in the relegation playout zone. Pescara, Cremonese, and Venezia are all 1 point safe, so there's definitely plenty still to play for. In the Serie C playoff, Carpi drew Alessandria, so Carpi advanced for finishing higher in the table. Juve's U23 squad defeated Padova 2-0, so Juventus are only three wins away from having a club in the top two flights of Italian football. Potenza defeated Triestina 1-0, Novara upset Renate 2-1, and Ternana upset Monopoli 2-1. So Carpi, Juve U23, Potenza, Novara, and Ternana advanced to the quarterfinals, where they will be joined by Carrarese, Reggio Adace and Bari, who all got a bye to the quarterfinals for finishing second in their respective groups. So that's it for part two. In part three, we'll review Napoli's win over Genoa. Passa scampanianna pattuleta Con manu appa pata fa guarda Tu vuoi fare l'americano, americano, americano Sienta a me chi tu fa fa Tu vuoi vivere alla moda Ma se bevi whisky e soda Poto siente disturbato tu a ballo rock e roll, tu gioca pesa bolla, vei sorta beccamella, chi te li dà la borsetta di mamma tua fa l'americano, americano, americano, ma si nati in Italia, si entra a me non c'è sta niente fa, ok napolitan, tu vuoi fa l'americano, tu vuoi fa l'americano. Okay, so let's review Napoli's win against Genoa. And we're underway at Marassi. It's Genoa against Napoli. Elmas Mete still there for Fabian Ruiz and Maximovic. Manolas had a swing in it. Elmas! Napoli have the lead. Enyif Elmas on hand to turn it in. The discussion is now as to whether the ball 
Struck the hand there of Costas Manolas. The ball cannot strike an attacking player's hand in the build-up to a goal. I think the goal will be overruled for that. Nothing wrong with the position of Elmas, but it's the left hand of Costas Manolas, which has cost Napoli their opening goal. Manolas, Lobotka, keeping things ticking over in the middle of the park. Husai, and now Insigne. Dries Mertens, it's in. Mertens picks out the bottom corner, and Napoli have their goal right on the stroke of half-time. No surprises to see it's their all-time leading scorer. Casata doesn't have time to send it back in. The Belgian, the difference maker and the break at Marassi. Half-time score here at the Stadio. Luigi Ferraris, Genoa nil, Napoli won. Genoa's rivals in this particular match day. We're back underway then at Marassi. Rather casual from Merthens trying to play it off his opponent. It's not often you see a corner given away from 40 yards, but there you go. Lasse Scherner with the set piece. It's headed goalwards. How wouldn't you know it? Golden Eager has the leveler for Genoa. Good run this from Lozano. He's away. Irvin Lozano. Can he apply the finish? He can indeed. Lovely run from the Mexican. An instant impact off the bench. One by Guillone. There goes the full-time whistle. It's another win for Napoli and Gattuso. So as you heard, Napoli won this match 2-1. As usual, we'll start with the lineups. Genoa lined up in their usual 3-5-2 with Mattia Perin and goal. Perin had an excellent match. Like Paolo Lopez in the Roma match, Perin made a number of saves to keep Genoa in this match, which we'll cover throughout the review. At the back, Davide Biraski started at right back, which was a little surprising because he's normally a wing back, not a center back. Christian Zapata lined up in the middle, and the flexible Andrea Maziello played left back. Zapata was an absolute beast in this match. He's definitely a player I would love to have at Napoli. I was really hoping to see Christian Romero or Adama Sumauro play, but neither started, and with Genoa being down, they did not come off the bench either. In the midfield, Eduardo Goldaniga played at right wing back. He's normally a center back, and this looked like a brilliant decision by Davide Nicola, as Goldaniga scored Genoa's only goal of the match. Antonio Baraka lined up at left wing back. In the midfield, we were expecting to see Shkona and Casata, but we thought Sturaro would play instead of ex-Napoli player Valon Barami. Barami was replaced by Leraguer in the 64th minute, and Falke replaced Casata in the 71st minute. Up top were Pinamonti and Sanabria, also no surprises there. Pandev replaced Sanabria in the 71st minute, and Favilli replaced Pinamonti in the 82nd minute. For Napoli, Alex Meret started in goal. Like the Roma match, he wasn't too busy in this one. There's not too much he could do on the goal. Meret made his best save in the 35th minute, pushing Casata's shot off the post. We thought Kusai would give Mario Rui a rest, but instead he gave Di Lorenzo a rest. Mario Rui put in another strong performance. I thought he got better as this match went on. He nearly scored in the 69th minute with a powerful dipping strike that Perin managed to push over the bar. Then a few minutes later, he made an important tackle on Pinamonti, as Genoa counterattacked. With Koulibaly out due to suspension, Manolas and Maksimovic started at center back. Manolas had a few tough moments in this match. He got called for a handball on the LMS goal that was disallowed, though I don't fault him for that. He couldn't really avoid it. He also turned the ball over late in the first half, which led to a scoring opportunity for Genoa, but Maksimovic came over and made an excellent block. 
and he lost his man on the Golden Eagle goal for Genoa. Maximovic wasn't his best either in this match, but both did enough to hold the line. In the midfield, Diego Demme was also suspended, so Stanislav Loboka started at Regista. Other than one play where Lobotka was pressured into conceding a corner kick, I thought he was really good in this match. You can see his confidence is growing. We previously talked about how conservative he has been playing. He always makes the safe pass. In this match, he was a bit more adventurous and creative with his passing. Loboka completed more passes and clocked more kilometers than any other player on the pitch. He even came close to scoring in the 41st minute with a powerful hit from outside the box that bent just wide of the goal. Elif Elmas started over Piotr Zielinski. On the preview, we overlooked that Zielinski was on a suspension, which is why Fabian started and Zielinski didn't. Gattuso surely wanted to preserve Zielinski for the match against Milan on the weekend. He did make a brief appearance at the end of the match, but was careful to stay out of the official's book. Elmas was really motivated in this one. In the broadcast, they talked about what a smart signing he was and how highly his Macedonian compatriots speak of him. One of those compatriots is former Napoli player Goran Pandev, who came on as a substitute for Genoa later in the match. Another is Udinese's Ilya Nestorovsky, who has spoken glowingly about Elmas as well. Elmas thought he scored in the 7th minute, which would have been his second goal of the season, both goals coming against Genoa. However, after consulting with the VAR, match official Maurizio Mariani determined that Costas Manolas handled the ball just before Elmas finished, so the goal was overturned. He nearly scored again in the 15th minute with an acrobatic effort, but Perin was up to the task. Fabian completed the three-man midfield. I thought Fabian was very good in this one, especially in the attacking half. On the Elmas goal that was disallowed, Fabian was the player who saved the ball from going out for a goal kick and then played the cross. In the second half, he played the long ball to pick out Lozano's run for the second goal. He did have a moment or two where he was too casual at the back. In the Atalanta match, his play led to Atalanta's first goal. Fabian wasn't the only player who was guilty of this though. There were quite a few actually, but we'll get to that in just a bit. Up top, we were a little bit surprised to see Insigne start his 7th consecutive match since the restart of Coppa Italia. I thought this was a perfect opportunity to give Lozano a start. Insigne was really quiet in this match and he was replaced by Amin Yunus in the 80th minute. Mertens and Politano started over Milik and Callejon. Mertens played really well once again. He had a few shots on goal early on, nearly scoring in the 31st minute. Politano played a long ball for Elmas at the top of the box and he did really well to lay it off for Mertens. Dries got an excellent shot off, but again, Pedin made a great save to keep the ball out. At the very end of the first half, Mertens scored his 8th goal in Serie A, his 15th in all competitions, and his 124th all-time for Napoli, so he's starting to pull away from Matic Hamsik in terms of most goals for the club. This was another beautiful team goal. They completed 11 passes in the build-up using both sides of the pitch, and 7 different players touched the ball on the play. After we saw classic goals from Callejon and Insigne against Roma, this was a classic Dries Mertens goal. He received the ball at the top of the box and went with accuracy over power, tucking the ball just inside the post. Mertens celebrated the goal the same way Callejon did by putting his head on his chin. We know Mertens has been trying to convince Callejon to stay. After the match, he told Sky Sport, I played seven years with him and it hurts me to think that he can go away. Knowing that he stays here, playing for free because he cares a lot for the shirts is an extraordinary example. He could go on vacation, so after a goal, he deserves the dedication. Adek Malik replaced Mertens in the 64th minute, but didn't really leave a mark on this match. Finally, I know just about every Napoli fan wants Lozano to replace Politano as the starting winger, myself included, but I thought Politano had a decent performance. 
He had a couple of chances, one early on in the match from a very tight angle and another in the 57th minute when his cross bounced off the top of the bar. But other than that, he didn't really do too much. Politano made way for Lozano in the 64th minute. Last episode, we covered Gattuso's interview with Sky Sports after the Roma match, and when asked about Lozano, he said the Mexican has been sharper and more reactive lately, so he's getting more opportunities. Every time he comes in, he seems to make an immediate impact. Only two minutes after entering the match, Lozano used his incredible pace to get behind the Genoa back line, and then collected himself before putting his shot past Mattia Perin. A few final points on the match. Napoli had excellent ball possession, they really moved the ball around nicely. Throughout the match, they would string 10 or 12 passes together before a Genoa player touched the ball. Even when they conceded possession, they quickly retrieved it and started the build-up again. Gattuso talked about attacking space, I thought the movement off the ball was excellent as well. The attack was very fluid, they used both sides of the pitch, which was really difficult for Genoa to defend. We saw Fabian, Elmas, and Lobotka all moving all over the pitch. Mertens and Insigne often switched positions. One criticism I have is Napoli were a little too casual at the back. Sometimes the right decision is to just clear the ball out. In the 12th minute, Fabian conceded possession in Napoli's box. Then on the ensuing goal kick, he was forced to foul Shona at the edge of the box after conceding possession again. Just before the break, Laboca was pressured into dribbling back towards his own goal and ultimately played the ball out for a corner kick. And then of course there was the Goldeniga goal, where again, while under pressure, Mertens tried to clear the ball off a Genoa player, but instead played the ball out for a corner from 40 yards out. We'll talk about Milan in part 4, but you know they will have watched this match and you can expect they will press Napoli's back line, so Gattuso will have to address this before Sunday. We already knew about the depth in this squad, but what we're seeing with players like Elmas, Lobotka, Politano, and Lozano is the same as what we've seen between Mertens and Milik, which is that all of our subs provide a little something different than their starting counterparts. Gattuso touched on that in his interview with Sky Sport as well. For a manager, this is really useful. In this match, by bringing on Lozano, Gattuso introduced an entirely different attacking threat. All of a sudden, Napoli had much more pace in the attack, and Genoa had to defend the long ball. So that's it for our review of Napoli-Genoa. In part 4, we'll preview Napoli's next match against Milan. Close the pod with a preview of Napoli's match on Sunday against Milan. Normally we start the preview with a review of the opponent's most recent match, but we already covered Milan's match against Juventus in part 2, 
but that's okay though, there's still plenty to discuss here. These are two of the hottest clubs since Serie A resumed. Let's start with Napoli's most recent matches. We'll only quickly cover these since we've already covered them in great detail in the last 7 episodes or so. Of course, before Serie A resumed, Napoli won the Coppa Italia, which was like a mini preseason for the Partenope, and more importantly, immediately restored the momentum that Napoli had before play was suspended. In Serie A, Napoli have won 4 of their 5 matches, the only loss coming against Atalanta, who's been the hottest team in Serie A since even before play was suspended. Other than Atalanta, Napoli have had a relatively easy schedule. The most difficult one was their first Serie A match after the restart against Hellas Verona. Napoli were fortunate to walk away from that match with a 2-0 win. Next, they comfortably beat Spal, who were only one point clear of last place at the time. After losing to Atalanta, the Azzurri defeated a struggling Roma squad 2-1. And then most recently, they beat Genoa, who now sit in the relegation zone. So outside of the Coppa Italia matches, this match against Milan is probably Napoli's biggest challenge in the last little while. So let's talk about Milan's most recent matches. Other than a pretty awful performance against Spal, where Milan were fortunate to pick up a draw on a Spal own goal in added time, Milan have won all four of their matches. They opened with a 4-1 win over Lecce, that was a bit of a sloppy match which was understandable being the first match after returning from the break. All four of Milan's goals were well taken, and the only goal they conceded was on a rather weak penalty call. Granted, Milan were fortunate that Gianluca Lapadula left early in this match after injuring his ankle. Heading into that match, Lapadula was Lecce's top scorer. Next, Milan defeated Roma which was a much-anticipated and highly disappointed match between two clubs competing for Europa League qualification. Neither squad really did much in the first half. A win is a win, but I think the best way to describe this outcome is that Milan were the less bad team in the match. We also didn't know at the time that this match was really the start of the collapse of Roma. It was the next two wins that I was most impressed with. First, Milan shocked second place Lazio 3-0, Chiro Immobile and Felipe Caicedo missed that match due to suspension, so Simone Inzaghi resorted to playing Luis Alberto up top, which didn't go too well. Milan were by far the more efficient side in this match. Meanwhile, Zlatan Ibrahimovic made his first start since returning from a calf injury. Watching the match, it felt like Lazio had more possession, but in the end, possession was about 50-50. The difference, though, was that Milan's play was far more positive when they had possession. They created opportunities, and more importantly, they finished them. Lazio, on the other hand, created very little. Finally, we had the 4-2 win over Juventus that we covered in Part 2. Juve were without Paolo Dybala and Matthias De Ligt, which I didn't think would make much of a difference, but I was wrong. After no goals were scored in the first half, these sides combined for 6 goals in the second half. Juve scored 2 goals in 7 minutes, and then Milan responded with 3 goals in 5 minutes. Rebic put the match away in the 80th minute. So during this 5-game stretch, Milan have collected 13 of a possible 15 points. Their 15 goals is tied with Juventus and Sassuolo for most goals during that period, while only Napoli and Cagliari have conceded fewer goals. Taken together, Milan has the best goal differential in the league since match day 26 at plus 10. Only Cristiano Ronaldo, Andrea Bellotti and Kevin Lasagna have scored more than anti Rebic during this run. They all have 5 goals while Rebic, Dybala and Luis Muriel have four. So on that note, let's get to the starting lineups. With Pioli, you pretty much know what you're going to get with Milan starting 11. The Rossoneri will line up in a 4-2-3-1 with Gigio Donnarumma in goal. At the back, Teo Hernandez, Alessio Romagnoli, Simon Cagliari, and Andrea Conti have played just about every match since the restart, so I expect them to go again. 
Likewise, Frank Kessia and Ismail Benacer should start as the holding midfielders. Alexis Salamakers should start on the right wing while Samu Castillejo continues to recover from injury. The only positions we've really seen Pioli rotate are left and center mid. On the left, we typically see Hakan Chalanoglu, but last match Antti Rebic started on the left. I expect Hakan to get the start. In the middle, Giacomo Bonaventura is the usual starter, but we've also seen Lucas Paqueta play in that spot, and I expect Bonaventura will start. Up top will be Zlatan Ibrahimovic. For Napoli, I expect Gattuso to start his best starting 11. Gattuso will line up in his usual 4-3-3. I think Alex Meret will get another start in goal. At the back, Kalidou Koulibaly returns from suspension, so he should be paired with Kostas Manolas in the middle. Mario Rui has been really good of late, so he will likely start at left back, though I wouldn't be too shocked to see Kusai replace Mario Rui at some point, as Rui has clocked a lot of minutes in the last four matches. Giovanni Di Lorenzo rested last match, so he should return to his starting role for this one at right back. In the midfield, Diego Demme returns from suspension as well, and will start at the Regista. In front of him will be Piotr Zielinski, who rested most of last match. Like Mario Rui, I expect Fabian to start as well, even though he's clocked a lot of minutes in the last four matches as well. Up top, Lorenzo Insigne will start his 8th consecutive match at left wing. Gattuso has alternated between Mertens and Milik at striker, so that pattern would dictate that Milik starts this match. Similarly, Gattuso has alternated between Callejon and Politano at right wing, which means Callejon will likely start this one. As much as we would all love to see Lozano start, he still does not fit well with that style of play that Gattuso employs. However, Lozano is a very useful option off the bench, particularly if Napoli need to score. As far as the betting odds go, Napoli are just about even money. Milan pay 2.4 to 1, and the draw pays 2.6 to 1. For my prediction, I'm going to take Napoli to win this one 1-0 on a goal from Arkadouj Milik. Despite having played Lazio and Juventus in their last two matches, I think this Napoli squad in the form they're in is actually the toughest opponent Milan will have played since the restart. Yes, Lazio is second place, but they've only won two matches since the restart because of their lack of depth, and in that particular match, they were without the leader for Capo Cannoniere, Ciro Immobile. Similarly, Juventus may be in first place, but since the restart, Juventus has the same record as Napoli, and they played that match without one of the hottest attacking players in the league in Paolo Dybala, and without the heir to Giorgio Chiellini, Matthias De Ligt, so Juve were forced to start Daniela Rugani in that match. Napoli have a full squad, and six of their outfield players will be rested in Koulibaly, Di Lorenzo, Demme, Zielinski, Milik, and Callejon. Meanwhile, Milan have pretty much fielded the same starting 11 every match, so despite the extra day of rest, and despite having a relatively young squad, I think fatigue eventually has to catch up to them. I think Gattuso is going to be fired up to win this match against his former club, and the club that let him go after leading them to a 5th place finish, only 1 point back of Champions League qualification, and his players will do anything for him right now. Napoli have conceded only 3 goals since the restart, which is fewer than any other club in Serie A, unless Milan are awarded a penalty by VAR, which has been fairly common practice for them, I don't see Napoli allowing a goal in this one. Koulibaly can easily shut down an aging Zlatan Ibrahimovic. I think the biggest threat to Napoli is Teo Hernandez, particularly on the counterattack. We saw how Di Lorenzo struggled with Spinazzola in the Roma match, so Callejon will need to track back to help defend. I also expect Milan to pressure Napoli's back line when they try to play the ball out from the back, as we saw Genoa employ this tactic with great effect. However, Gattuso saw this happen too, and you can be sure that he spent the last few days correcting this issue. 
Finally, I think Napoli will continue their positive play, which means maintaining possession and stringing passes together. When Milan has the ball, Napoli will drop back into their 4-1-4-1 formation, which gives them the advantage in the midfield in terms of numbers. By clogging up the midfield, Milan will be forced to play the ball over the top, where Koulibaly and Manolas will be waiting. So that's my preview of Napoli versus Milan. That will also do it for episode 25. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please share it with your friends, give us a 5-star rating, and leave a review on your favorite podcast platform. As always, if you have any questions or if you'd like me to cover anything in particular, you can find me on Twitter at Joe underscore Fischetti 5, or you can find the podcast at Forza Napoli Pod. We'll talk to you again after the Milan match, but until then, I'm Joe Fischetti, Forza Napoli sempre. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.